0: Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers and others defining that future. This week, I speak to Amanda Weeks, who's the founder and CEO of Ambrosia, a food waste technology company that has recently come out with its first product, which is a cleaning product. Called Velez. Some of you may know Amanda as being the founder and CEO of Industrial Organic. That was the previous name of Ambrosia. And they had a bit of a development, maybe pivot. We'll hear her talk about it on this on this episode, and became Ambrosia just quite recently. It's pretty interesting to see how this startup has developed. Over the years, there have been a lot of companies that have been trying to repurpose food waste. Amanda's focused on the food service industry, getting food waste from there. And being a female in this industry as well, she had some interesting stories to tell. We recorded this just before COVID-19 became a pandemic. And so while we definitely reference it, I probably don't ask as many questions about its impact as I probably would if I was interviewing her today. But in any case, I hope you still enjoy it. And thank you for listening.
1: I know it's been, I think we, we met for coffee once like four years ago.
0: And so back then you were creating a network of urban biorefineries to take food waste from restaurants and make ag products like fertilizer. But now you're in the consumer products world with a new cleaning product. And obviously there's a link, but it feels like a big evolution or could we even say a pivot?
1: Yeah, I think it was in... Evolution, the first part of that statement is still correct. We are still intending to open distributed biorefineries around cities. We have a demo facility in Newark that's been operating since 2018, initially just focused on the waste processing part of it which is a really difficult nut to crack i'm sure you know and the end products were a little bit of an afterthought at the time and it seemed you know fertilizer was the obvious choice but because it's the obvious choice there's a lot of other people doing it which is why we ended up going down a different path
0: interesting and so how did you come to the cleaning product space
1: a couple of things. One, it was kind of an accident. So One of the byproducts of our process, we have formulated into this cleaning product and we initially thought that it was just water, that it was just distilled water from our process. But it smelled a little bit acidic, a little bit vinegary, uh, had a low pH and then we had it tested and we found the
0: components to
1: be distilled water, organic acids, alcohol. And at that point, myself as a consumer, I had become very interested in clean and natural products, in educating myself about ingredients. And so I saw that and I said, oh, that's a natural cleaning product. So we started working with outside labs that test cleaning products for efficacy. And so we just started testing it against other cleaners in the market, both natural and conventional. And it outperformed our expectations every time we got the results back. And so we figured that this was an interesting path to go down. And it's something where it's also is in my wheelhouse. I have a background in Consumer insights, marketing analytics, strategy. I worked on the agency side for a number of different Unilever brands. And so it also felt a little bit like more of my comfort zone than getting into agriculture.
0: That's so awesome. That's amazing. And so you didn't actually have to doctor the product or add anything else to it. It was literally the product that you were creating in your biorefineries from the food waste, and, and that was ready to go.
1: Yes and no. And the last iteration of our production of the product that went into our first run that we're selling now, we started to dial that in a little bit more because we wanted it to be consistent. And we also had some work to do around the base odor. So we added in some filtration steps and then we also included a fragrance. But essentially, yeah, it was... More or less a product right off the bat. And that was another reason why we pursued it. It just was something where we felt like it was within our resources to produce and formulate and bring to market. It's a type of product that requires, you know, unfortunately, not as much rigor in terms of its claims and testing. You know, it's not like selling a fertilizer where we need to have all these case studies, which we need to convince a farm to buy it. Selling a consumer product, there's a much lower barrier to entry and it's a much shorter sales cycle. And so it just felt like, you know, a lower hanging fruit, so to speak.
0: That's fantastic. And I love the branding. So you've got a different name for the cleaning product, which is, is it Veles? (laughs) That's how I say it. Belez, that's great. And your company obviously is Ambrosia. So do you imagine having various different products coming out of the Ambrosia parent company as such?
1: Yes, that's the idea. Ambrosia is the food and drink of ancient gods that made them immortal. And we felt that and evoked the idea of circularity. And then all of our products will be named for different ancient gods that have qualities that relate to that product. So Velez is an ancient shape-shifting god of water, earth, the underworld, and magic, which we felt like touched upon so many aspects of the value of the product we're saving water. Cleaning products are over 90% water. All of the water in the base of our product is recovered from food waste. We're obviously, you know, in the underworld through sort of this idea of like death and, um, you know, ultimately rebirth. So the product is being made circular or immortal by food waste.
0: Love it. So can we dig a little bit into the science and can you explain, you know, what is an urban biorefinery? How do you build those? How many do you have now? Just talk a bit about how that process actually works. Yeah,
1: so right now we only have our demo location, but we're in the process of raising financing for biorefineries in New York City. It's a slow process and, you know, requires a bit of capital. So, I've been working to structure the business in such a way that the biorefineries will be funded through project finance as the utility where it's all based on the tipping fees. And we're going after a lower rung of food waste. You know, We're going after non-consumable food waste, essentially. There are a lot of companies that are out there that are going after consumable food waste. It's higher value. They can make it back into products for consumption, whether that be for people or animals. And we're going for you know, more mixed pre and post-consumer food waste, post-consumer food waste, where that waste stream is going to still be reliant on, you know, a tipping fee model. And what happens in these biorefineries is it's really more of a materials handling solution, I would say, than a scientific one. The science comes in more downstream. So food base is made of organic compounds, sugars and carbohydrates, fats and oils. And what we do is we stabilize it through a brief fermentation period. And then we separate out the base components mechanically. So we're employing multiple different types of separation technologies to end up with raw materials that can then be further processed into new ingredients, new products, of which the cleaning product is the first. But the cleaning products, the active ingredients, are ingredients that we got from fermenting the sugars that we recover from food waste.
0: I see. Okay. And so talk me through this tipping fee issue you just mentioned. So the restaurants or whoever has the food waste pays a fee to dump their waste with you? So we
1: intend to work with the waste haulers. So the way that industry works is the businesses and even you know municipalities, if it's a public collection service where your taxes are paying for it, either way a truck comes and collects that waste and they're paid for it somehow, whether by a business through collection fees or it's public collection service through taxes. And then that truck has to go somewhere. And when that they go to a landfill or when they go to a recycling facility, they have to pay a tipping fee. So we are working, we're not necessarily going to work directly with the food waste generators, like with the restaurants. We work with the haulers and part of our approach is that by breaking up these facilities, we can cut down on the truck traffic and we can save them a lot of money than they would have spent driving out, you know, out of state, for example to a compost facility or to a landfill or to an AD facility. And then also saving the other costs like wear and tear on their vehicles from driving out. You know, a lot of these trucks are driving several hours upstate to a farm where the last mile is on a dirt road that doesn't get paved in the winter with a truck that has a very heavy load of garbage because food waste is very heavy.
0: Right. Okay. So you're actually solving some of those infrastructural challenges around food waste. Correct. Fantastic. And your biorefineries, have those been designed in-house by the Ambrosia team? Or is it, you know, quite a typical model?
1: No, to date, we have done everything in-house. I think that that will change soon. Once we get further along in the fundraising process, we'll bring in an outside engineering firm. But at the moment, we have a process engineer on the team who has done all of our modeling out of the facility to date.
0: Fantastic. So, what types of investors do you have? You know, I know you've been building this for a few years now. And as you mentioned, biorefineries, that's, you know, expensive stuff and it's very much a physical asset, which some venture capitalists, I know it wouldn't fit into their thesis. So, what kind of investors do you have backing you?
1: Excellent question. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey raising money for this company. And I think that the tides are really turning where there's more BC interest in this business and businesses like this than there were four years ago when I first started fundraising. This is exactly why I'm shuffling things around a little bit and where we're trying to create almost two entities. One, that's just the biorefineries that are funded through debt, that are more capital intensive, that can be underwritten by the tipping fees. And then the product side of the business that has maybe a greater upside, a little bit more risk, that's more attractive to VCs, that's the current pitch that I'm working with. And it seems that it's separating that out because it's a very long pitch. (laughs) So when I fundraise, I feel like I end up explaining the company for 20 minutes. And so by distilling that down and simplifying it, I feel like that approach makes more sense to people. And so kind of removing the slow capital-intensive aspect of the companies off to the side. Kind of like how you know, a lot of indoor farms, when they open a location, it's a separate LLC. And then the main company kind of owns the tech. And they're structured more like a software company up top. And that's how you know a lot of those companies have been able to raise VC. I'm looking to the indoor farming business model for inspiration and how to structure this because there are similar challenges
0: that's really interesting and i think you know anybody entrepreneurs out there listening to this should really take that to note i think amanda has seen firsthand the challenge of building things in this industry where you definitely need those production assets but they can you know be very challenging finding investors for them and the time frame can be very long as well that's great to hear and you know coming back to this idea of having this consumer product arm and it was interesting that you said that you had consumer insights in your background how did you then go from that to a food waste startup?
1: That's the question. That's the million dollar question. (laughs) I've always been very entrepreneurial. I've always been someone who likes to plan, likes to problem solve, likes to untangle things. And I was feeling unfulfilled. I started becoming interested in food and food systems. And as I was saying before, Supply chain, product ingredients. In 2011, I almost ran away from New York to work on a dairy farm in Maine, but didn't. Instead, started a company.
0: That would have been fun too.
1: I know, yeah. It would have been a very different life. Who knows where I would be right now. But I just started looking at, at space. Broadly, because I felt that you know, I wanted to do something that directly impacted people that you know had many facets to it that would never really go away. You know, that was sort of recession proofs, like we're still going to eat and consume things to a certain degree, no matter what. So I ended up gravitating towards food waste right after New York City initially passed the law that would mandate businesses divert food waste from landfill and it felt like a natural fit because as a native New Yorker, I actually grew up about three miles away from Fresh Kills, which used to be the biggest landfill in the world and viewable from space. That was New York City's primary landfill. It felt like there was a link there. Even though I you know, initially had no business being in this industry, there was that origin story that I could point to that made sense to people. And I initially was embarrassed of my background and it was something that I thought was a drawback, something that I thought hurt the company. But now looking at the landscape, I think that the fact that I do know the consumer products industry, and I have a marketing background, I think is now a major advantage for us.
0: That's really interesting that you say you're embarrassed about it. And I think maybe that was a function of the fact that you were focusing on agriculture for your first product. I know it certainly can be nerve wracking sometimes talking about agricultural issues when you know you're not from a farming background. You know, I've certainly felt that myself. It's interesting that now, you know, we're really seeing with these supply chains being shortened, that consumer products and consumer food and, and farming and agricultural products or, and food waste, it's really becoming a much tighter knit ecosystem and much more relevant to have that consumer experience now, whereas a few years it wouldn't have been. And that's really interesting. You've experienced that firsthand.
1: Yes. And I think that consumer trends and consumer demands in their home and personal care products will incentivize larger corporations to look at this solution and consider also making products this way. Because our long-term goal is to partner with CPG companies and develop products and ingredients with them. And I was having a conversation last week where I was told that Trying to sell agricultural products are very difficult unless you're saving a farmer money. They're not interested. They're not really driven by you know the circular economy and all these buzzwords. But consumers are, and and so I think that also just in terms of awareness and demand and also the openness to try products like this, maybe. Exists more right now in the consumer products landscape than in, you know, commercial agriculture, for example. But I, I could also be wrong about that. You know, I hear
0: different, different competing opinions all the time. But it still, yeah, it all speaks to how consumers are having this impact. You know, down the down the supply chain, whether it's on what farmers are growing or how the food is being processed. Interestingly, we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago Adam Lowry, who is from Method Cleaning Products. And he has now got a plant-based dairy company. So it's kind of interesting to see him come into this space. You guys are kind of going in different directions. You know, he's very much focused on what the consumer wants and obviously had success with Method Products because it resonated with consumers to have cleaner products in their homes and is now looking at how consumers are concerned about environmentalism in terms of the the foods that they eat. So that was an interesting parallel.
1: The interesting thing about, making a cleaning product that I consider that wasn't necessarily purposeful, but it's a category that I think really led the charge in educating people about the benefits of, you know, having more transparency in their ingredients or being more thoughtful about the products that they're using in their homes. And while cleaning products are a pretty crowded field, I think that it's a natural progression for us to launch a cleaning product in a market that's already been primed to demand you know, natural products and plant-based ingredients for a very long time.
0: Okay, switching things up a little bit to, for some more general questions now. What did you have for breakfast today?
1: Oh, for breakfast, I had a little sweet potato and egg quiche from a place called Proper Foods. That was
0: very good. That sounds delicious. Is that your typical breakfast? No, I usually eat
1: fruit and I'll usually have some berries or something. I hate to say that my breakfast habits are fairly inconsistent. It's the most important meal of the day. (laughs)
0: Well, that's nice. There's some people that come on and they have the same thing every day. So um, you're mixing it up. And how would you describe your food preferences? Are you gluten-free, dairy-free, anything like that?
1: I believe in moderation. I am not free of anything in particular. I would say that I eat vegan or vegetarian about half the time. And I'm very mindful of when I eat meat. I'll probably only eat red meat maybe once a month, if that, and it has to be special. And I have to ideally have bought it myself or be in a restaurant where I know it's coming from someplace responsible. I don't eat pork very much because of just the pork industry and things are very smart. I try to track my meat intake to a minimum, but I don't really subscribe to any kind of restrictive
0: diet. Interesting. So thinking about how you've been working in this space for a long time, and now you're you know, coming at it from a different angle, this is quite a big question. So feel free to take your time. But what is your vision for the future food system? Perhaps name one or two things you think we'll see in 2050 that are different from today or that you think we should see. I
1: think that we will see more people growing or raising their own food. I think we're going in that direction. I think people are more and more interested in farming and gardening where there was I feel like a little bit of a dark period where farming went away and just became this mysterious thing that you know happened off screen. And I think that's coming back in people's consciousness. People are starting to become more interested in and in taking a more active role in where their food comes from and bringing that home. You know that's going to continue, and I think that we're going to see more innovative and sustainable ingredients. So I think we're going to see insect products. I think we're going to see more seaweed products, algae products. I think that there's still a long way to go with some of those, but I think that that's something in the future. I think that it's
0: going to be even more in place. That's really interesting because I am pregnant at the moment <laughs> and I'm taking a prenatal supplement. And I realized the other day that it's a vegetarian one that was on the label. And I was like, oh, okay, what does that mean? And I realized that it's removed the omega from fish oils and it's now replaced it with DHA, which is basically, I think the same, but from algae instead. I think it's interesting to see, yeah, how those consumer food preferences are going to drive some of that in products that you would never imagine to see those in.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think supplements is the first frontier, getting people comfortable consuming it and then eating it. I've had some algae products over the years that were a little weird in consistency or tasted a little weird. So I think we have a little bit of a ways to go in terms of food science and in terms of flavors of those products. But Yeah, I think that that getting people comfortable, taking taking it in a supplement form is the first step. What keeps you up at night? (laughs) That's funny. I was up last night. We've got a lot going on. It's a multifaceted company and it has to be because we're dealing with a physical product and we need to create end markets for it in order to be able to scale up our waste intake and actually provide a true waste solution. And it's been a long road. And I've learned so much. And I've really grown into my job leading this company. And I just look back at things, choices I made two years ago, or, you know, things that I wish I would have done differently. Like, I wish I could do all this over again. I really think that we are going in the right direction. I wish we would have landed here a little bit earlier, we were limited by the amount of uh, capital that I could raise. And I think that that's going to change. As I said, I think more and more VCs are becoming interested in this space. But yeah, right now, I'm just thinking about the journey that's got me here. And how do I learn from that? What are the choices that I'm going to make to move forward? Because it's just, it's a very decision-heavy job,
0: Right. That can definitely be tough. Well, I think you've landed just where you need to be. I'm super impressed with the new branding, the new product. It's really exciting. Just one final question. Do you think anything would have been different in the last few years if you'd been a man?
1: Yes. Should I expand on that? Yes, please do. Yeah. So I think that on the one hand, there were opportunities afforded to me by being a woman some of our investors are female focused funds i've certainly been invited to speak at things and speak on panels because they needed a woman and so i've you know had opportunities from that but at the same time i think that it definitely relates to our financing how much money i've raised and what valuation what was the hoops that I had to jump through. I think that I have had to meet a much higher standard. You know, a lot of the administrative tasks in the company have also sort of like fallen to me in a way that I feel is a little gendered. But I do definitely think that I, at the very least, would have raised a lot more
0: money than I have. Do you have any advice to budding female entrepreneurs out there in our space? Because there's a growing number of them.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is not going to be the best advice. Over the course of being a part of this company and fundraising and being the public face has impacted my wardrobe a lot. You know, I never wear dresses. I don't wear dresses anymore. I don't wear skirts anymore, very rarely. I've definitely tried to tweak or move my wardrobe in more of a gender neutral position. And I think that that's been helpful, just frankly, not the greatest thing I shouldn't have had to do that. But I think that my demeanor, my delivery, my wardrobe has definitely evolved in a way to try to counteract any kind of
0: Subconscious bias.
1: Right, exactly. I think that that has helped. I think that just trusting your instincts. I've had my instincts over the last couple of years, you know, validated time and time again, and that's really helped. And so just being confident, trying to be mindful about your speech and your speech patterns and trying not to say like too much and things like that. It's just any opportunity that you can to button things up so that someone doesn't get caught on something. They're getting caught on it because they're almost, you know, subconsciously like looking for a reason why you're not the right person for this, or you're not going to you know, successfully leave this company or whatever. VCs are always looking for reasons to say no. It's like easier to say no. And so I've really, really, worked and learned a lot in terms of just my presentation and delivery and just trying to smooth that out as much as possible. Sorry, that was long.
0: No, that's, that's really, really great. Great advice. Removing like and things like that. I know I struggle with for sure. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been just so nice to catch up with you. So excited about where the company's going and, you know, look forward to speaking soon. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.